Hi everyone, my name is Christiana Best and I'm an assistant professor at the University of St. Joseph. This is Inside Out, Outside In, a podcast developed for and by colleges and universities. The podcast is framed around the themes of diversity, inclusion, and equity. Our goal is to educate, inform, and build community as well as inspire change. Today's episode is focused on hate crimes on college campuses, particularly as it relates to racial incidents. In the studio with me today are Christina Jackson, Matthew McLean, Vanessa Velour, and Sneha Jaraha. They're here to share with me what their experience has been like attending predominantly white institutions as students of color particularly when there is a racial incident or a hate crime on campus. I'm curious to know, where do they get the strength and fortitude to move forward in these critical times, and what meaning do they take from their experiences? Let's listen to a recording of our conversation about hate crimes and racial incidents on college campuses. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself, specifically your academic career and background? All right. Um, I'm Christina Jackson. I'm a second-year policy practice student at the UConn School of Social Work. I'm getting my master's in social work right now. I'm concentrating in international studies, and I'm receiving a human rights certificate as well. Nice. And I have my bachelor's in psychology. Great. Great. Wonderful. Um, my name is Matt McLean. Uh I'm currently getting my master's in secondary math education to become a math teacher in the high school level. Uh, my undergrad, I started at Ithaca College as an MLK scholar um, studying business, and then I transferred to UConn, and I got my degree in math. Thank you. My name is Vanessa Villar. I graduated from University of Connecticut in 2018 with a bachelor's of communications, minors in Latino studies. Yes, thank you. My name is Sneha Jayraj. I got my undergrad at University of Connecticut in economics and psychology, and I got my master's in public policy at the University of Connecticut. Thank you. It's great to have you guys here. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this topic, which is very, very important. We're talking about hate crimes on college campuses today, and um, when when I think in terms of hate crimes, I'm thinking in terms of racial hate crimes or hate crimes motivated by religion or disability or xenophobia and also LGBTQ, okay? There's been a number of hate crimes in colleges now, right? Syracuse University was the last one I heard about through the media. Certainly UConn has had its own issues, um, as well as other schools. Um, when that happens, uh, what can you tell me? How, did it, how do you deal with it? What are your thoughts about it? I feel like when I hear it, I automatically just, I'm not surprised anymore. Like, it's just another occurrence that has happened. I guess the only surprising thing is that people still think that they can do these things and get away with it, I guess. Like the recent thing that happened on the stores campus at UConn with um, three individuals um, saying the N-word loud outside in front of some dorm rooms, Charter Oak buildings, I believe. And um, I mean, like, I understand, like, kids get intoxicated and things like that and, you know, do stupid things while they're in college. But 
I'm not sure if it was attention seeking. I'm not sure, you know, if they truly believe that that was the right thing to do at the moment. But um, my whole thing about it is the response from the school. Like, how does the school respond to something like that? Um, it almost seems as if that um, the school waits until it blows up into a bigger situation to say anything mm-hmm. when they knew what happened all along. So I know on the stores campus, they waited until um, police were involved. They waited until NAACP came on the campus to do some sort of community dialogue. And then um, the president sent a message out saying that this was unacceptable. And to me, that's more of a political response and not an emotional response, which is what students want to see. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So for you, the biggest issue is the administrator's response Mm -hmm. and having them respond timely and genuinely and in a way that bring about some form of change. Right. And something that seems genuine and not... um, Like when I say political, I mean like they're waiting for the most opportune time to speak in a strategic way. And I think students, especially students of color, want to see that they have a zero tolerance when it comes to these things. I think to add on that, they not only wait for the most opportune time, they will wait to see if it will fade out first Mm -hmm. before there is even an opportunity at all. My biggest problem when I was at UConn, There were so many instances where you're getting emails from administrators or the president of the school, and they're saying, we don't tolerate this, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll host one community conversation where it's already all the students who are already having these conversations. They give give us a space. They give whoever wants to be involved a space. They say, talk about it. They'll bring police there, so they're already making it confrontational. You'll have other students, other white students in particular, who will come in and become confrontational, and then it's over from there. And then that's like the end of the conversation until something else happens. Mm -hmm. And that's really unacceptable. It's really mind-boggling, but it's like like uh, Christina has said, it's so very political, and that's all that they're ever going to make it. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And to add on to that, um, what you're saying about is it just the administration? It's the administration, plus it's the students as well themselves. Um, uh, The students who are coming from schools where it's also unacceptable, it's seen as acceptable, and so they keep doing stuff like that. I'm not surprised at all with how these students are acting because all the white kids in my school said the N-word, you know, and and it was a white suburb, majority Italian. um, And so I'm not surprised at all with these actions because they were let go in high school, middle school, and elementary school. So when they go to a predominantly white institution, they're still seen as like, oh, this is fine to do it over here too. Um, And it just needs to be stopped right from the beginning. So you're saying that while we're hearing about it in a post-secondary institution, this goes on in elementary and high school and junior high school? Definitely, 100%, yeah. wow. yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I can even um, add to that, like just from my own personal story, it was third grade when I had, I mean, it probably wasn't my first incident with racism, but the first one that I remember and I remember, like, how all, like, little children have crushes on each other. I had a crush 
on this white boy in my classroom. And he stood up in front of the whole class and said, I don't like Christina because she's black. And that was like my first like mm. microaggression, I guess, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I like truly remember. Mm-hmm. And that just goes to show that like kids as young as that third grade are experiencing racism, mm-hmm. are committing racist acts. Even if they don't know what they're doing, they right. may be learning it at home and bringing it to school with them. Right. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I think it's like, just to add on to what you're saying, I think it's shameful to think that in college, that is their only time they're kind of being addressed to, like, if someone had, um, like, in your instance, made that explanation at at a third grade age, then you would think that by the time they come to a university campus, they Mm -hmm. wouldn't be, you know, still doing those microaggressions, still saying, you know, things that are not right um, in terms of race. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think in that instance as well, like I come from a Caribbean background. My parents are very, very Jamaican. And Mm -hmm. so they've always instilled in me um, to be proud of my blackness and um, to understand that, you know, white people aren't always going to understand you and they're not always going to treat you the way you want to be treated. And in that instance, in third grade, I stood up and I said, that is wrong. And (laughs) you need to tell his parents. And I was upset about it. And uh, the teacher did call both of our parents and explain what happened. So it did um, end up being resolved, I guess, as much as you could say it could be resolved. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't, if it was another black child though, that didn't really understand the situation that was going on, it might've turned out differently. Right. Yes. Yes. I'm amazed that it's happening at such a young age, you know, and that it is happening so frequently outside of and prior to Mm post-secondary. I feel a lot of it is because students do not identify with blackness. So Uh through cultural responses and just through media, so many kids feel comfortable saying the N-word or other microaggressions. And (laughs) I try so hard to just combat what they're saying and... I'm one of the very few who will do so. I'm also a part of the African-American club. We have a campaign where we're trying to get students to stop saying the N-word, but it is so exhausting because you could literally say, like, you should not be saying that every five minutes. Mm. They'll say it to their teachers. They'll say it to the other students. They'll just say it out loud because they want to. They feel comfortable doing so. It's just normal language for them now. And these are kids of all colors, right? Of all colors. Mm. Okay. It's it's so hard to regulate, and you can imagine how many times you hear it in one day, wow. and it's exhausting. Wow. You know, you said something that made me think, and I'm going to ask this question of all of you. When you hear it, it could be exhausting, um, whether it's directed at you or someone else or just collectively you experience this um, ouch when somebody either used the N-word or have a microaggression against you, right? And so how do you deal with that? How do you take care of yourself? I don't know. Sometimes you just got to decompress when you get home. Uh, Take your mind off it. If you really think about it, especially from a social work perspective, social justice never stops. So if if you really think about it, you can never take a break. But realistically, when you're by yourself or within the confines of people who you are comfortable with. Sometimes you just have to take a deep breath, 
and think about something else or act on something else besides work all day. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely pick and choose my battles. And there's times where I'm just like, you know, no, I'm not even going to address it. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to put myself out there because that's energy that I have to now dispend into the universe that I don't want to at the moment because I'm saving it for later for myself. Right. And so, yeah, I feel like that is self-care to me. Self-care isn't always... um, just like, I don't know, going home and painting my nails. It could be, but like mm-hmm. at the same time, mm-hmm. it is also saying no. Right. So you're aware of the setting, you're aware of uh, maybe possibly losing control mm-hmm. either by taking in the, the impact of the pain mm-hmm. as a result of that act. Um, and so you, you just kind of hold it. You right. say, I'm yeah. going to pause, hold it. I agree. I feel like sometimes if you don't feel like it can be a learning opportunity, then you shouldn't stress yourself out mm-hmm. or put so much pressure on yourself to teach someone something that she, they should already know. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and it isn't um, the role of the oppressed to do that. Exactly. And, um, yeah. like, so, like you said, I think pick and choose your battles. Like, yeah. If I feel like it's not the right opportunity for me to you know, have a fruitful and thoughtful conversation or you know, a, a calm discussion, mm-hmm. <laughs> then I won't mm-hmm. even engage in it. You know? Yeah. Key phrase, it's not the role of the oppressed to teach the oppressor, right? right? And when you confront it, it's there's always a teaching aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And that's work. Mm-hmm. You know, you not only have to control right. your anger, control your pain or your trauma, but you also have to teach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you get tired of that? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I feel like it goes into a bigger conversation about allyship, which I had on my campus recently. We had a community dialogue around allyship and just talking more about how being an ally doesn't just mean that you sit in the back and listen all the time. Sometimes being an ally is like being on the front line so that people who are oppressed don't have to constantly dispend their energy fighting oppressors. Mm-hmm. Good point. Good point. When I was an undergrad, oh, I'm sorry. Um, I ran as a multicultural diversity senator um, under with the undergraduate student government. And um, I ran in that position with the intention of um, kind of putting myself in a space where I knew I wasn't the norm. And, you know, I had the full intention of just being the voice of the people that were underrepresented. And of course, I, that what is what I was doing. But like you said, it gets so tiring. And I was in that space where no one looked like me. No one can understand what, you know, things that I would go through or things that people that are in my surrounding areas go through. And as much as I would say, this is something that, you know, we're doing. This is something that we feel, and as much as I would repetitively would do that, if well, overwhelmed and overwhelming to keep saying the same things. And no, it felt like I was talking and no one was listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and by my senior year, I was like, yeah, I really had enough. I had three years of putting myself in, the, in a space where I felt uncomfortable and I didn't feel like it was the right space for me as much as I I cared about the position as much as I cared about having that opportunity. To me, it felt like so much work and so much exhausting work that I decided to leave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very important. It's almost like the work has to be done. We need to have somebody do it or some groups do it. 
but it's so exhausting that in doing it, you just, you know, in terms of survival, you just sometimes have to let it go, right? things I was thinking of when I heard some of what you said was how do you talk about this in the classroom? Like, have you experienced issues of microaggression or unintentional racism in the classroom among your peers from a teacher, from a professor? Is, is that part of your experience? And if so, how do you address that? And if someone listening who is thinking of going to college one day, um, how do you help them navigate those, you know, waters, really? Uh, that question was actually asked. I took a social anthropology class at UConn, mm. and the professor asked the class. It was 100 people. It was a big classroom, a lecture hall. Uh, do you think sexism is a problem in today's climate? And everyone raised their hands. Um, then she asked, do you think race is a problem? And like five people raised their hands. No. Yeah. And it's because a people are uncomfortable, like you were saying before, with the whole conversation around race. Like everyone knows it's a problem, but they don't want to address it. And they kind of just kind of qu- want to quietly put it under the rug. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question that you asked about having it being a discussion in universities, I think is also part of the teacher, the professors and administration to constantly talk about race in everything that they do, like in their research, make sure that they have race in every single part of their data sets. Um, make sure that they say in the beginning of the class that when they're going through the syllabus, uh, they do have like a portion for uh, equity, but they don't really go that deep into it, right? And so make sure that that's in every single... Um, Thing that they're talking about because race is part of every single thing in society. Yeah. Thank you for that. I feel like going off of that, um, if professors don't do that, it falls on the few students of color that are actually there. Mm-hmm. And like myself, like I'm in a predominantly white institution and I'm going to talk about race. Race is embedded in all the problems that exist that we talk about in the classroom. And then when I do that, I'm labeled as this pro-black, anti-white girl. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, radical. Yeah, radical, <laughs> thing, which I don't even think is a bad word, right. but um, <laughs> I get labeled like that all the time. And I just think people don't understand the amount of um, just, I, I guess this goes back to the amount of energy that you have to dispend again in the classroom to feel the need to be validated and affirmed in your experiences, but then also having to like have the burden to teach everyone, like teach all the students in the class and the professor because the professor is not doing their job. And I recently had an experience with a supervisor for my field placement. So we have to do um, like internships for our program. And um, I was talking to her about white institutions and um, just, you know, things I've heard um, or read about them or things I feel about them. And she felt the need to say that I was angry 
And she repeated it many times. She's like, you're an angry person. You're an angry person. She said, I don't know how you'll fit into society with your views or in this work. I kind of just walked out of my internship on spot. I sent her an email. I said, I need to switch my internship immediately. Um, Goodbye. (laughs) And so that's not the first time something like that has happened. But I need to like go home after that and like reassure myself that, no, you did not do anything wrong. Because racism will have you feeling like you are in the wrong or what you're saying is not really true or what you experienced didn't really happen. And that's really not the case. Yeah. Wow. That's an extraordinary example. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. And that also talks about well-being, right? But also what happens when someone in authority projects their perspective onto you in a very negative way. Mm-hmm. You're initially coming into the profession. This person is revered. They have a lot of power. Um, and you are just beginning your profession. So do you stay, take what is being said, and turn yourself inside out to try to fix yourself? Mm-hmm. Or do you walk away? And it sounded like you felt empowered And you knew that you needed to step away at that moment. So I want to just say thank you for that, because it really speaks to, um, you know, people perpetuating institutional racism, but also seeing a different perspective as one that is negative um, and trying to, you know, crush your ego and stop you at the very beginning. No, I'm glad you said that because I did um, turn to other professors and other faculty at the school for advice. And the only advice they gave me was to keep my head down and keep going, especially the faculty of color. Mm -hmm. And that didn't resonate with me. I don't know if it's just like my Jamaican unruly spirit inside me, but (laughs) uh, yeah, it just it didn't make sense to me. First of all, I'm paying for this education and this woman had an obligation to teach me certain things. And if I'm not able to speak freely or if she's not able to welcome diversity of thought in her presence, then she's not someone I want to learn from. Right. Right. Wow. Now, what they said is something we've done historically. You know, we put blinders on. We know we have to jump through some huddles. And so we just do it and keep it going so that we can get through it. Mm -hmm. The thing is, by doing that, we're not helping those behind us and that we're hurting ourselves Mm -hmm. as well, right? Um, So it takes courage to do what you did. And I want to commend you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Definitely. I think to just add on that, it's, to me, it's all about being unapologetic. And I really learned this my freshman year when I um, was an MLK scholar. Because that was around the time where um, the Black Lives Matter movement was really kind of near its peak. Not saying that it's fizzled out or anything like that, but just in the news, in the media, all over the world. Right. And that's really when I started protesting. And just from the different classroom settings that I was in because of my program and just having the experience of protesting, I learned really two things. To be a prophetic leader or a foot soldier of any kind in a movement. You have to, number one, arm yourself with information because knowledge is power. That's It sounds cliche, but it's real. There's nothing more powerful than knowledge mm-hmm. because especially when you're in a, com- a, com- a confrontational conversation, 
when they run out of something to say, they start attacking you. And that's when you know, like, where are we here? You yeah. know what I mean? I'm I'm above you in the conversation just because you no longer want to have this conversation. And I think the other thing is to recognize that I didn't say or anybody in this room didn't say something based on the feelings of somebody else because they didn't want to hear it. I think that's like so absurd, ridiculous, and just self-centered to think that someone else shouldn't be able to speak just because you'll be offended, although it doesn't even affect you at all. It affects, obviously, the person saying it. It affects all the people in their lives. So everything that they said, it has intention and it has meaning and it has validation. And I think by being unapologetic, it's like you defined yourself as, like, I said what I said. And... (laughs) That's it. Because if you don't say it, then nobody else will. And if nobody else is going to advocate for you, then what's going to happen? Nothing. Right. Right. So for students who are thinking of going to college and they're hearing in the media about these hate crimes uh, of parents that are sending their children to colleges and white institutions and are concerned about sending their children to these institutions, what do you say to them? What do you say to the parents? What do you say to the students? Go to HBCU. <laughs> That's a tough question. I feel like if I had to do it all over again, I probably would have went to an HBCU. But if I did go to an HBCU, I also wouldn't know what black students in PWIs are going through. And that is a unique experience. So... You want to tell the audience what PWI is? Oh, predominantly white institution. Okay, thank you. Well, I so I read this paper actually um, about how a lot of college admission people are actually not taking people who have um, a background in black activism. So mm. there's that going on already, mm. um, and just the college admission folks are also, you know, being very anti-black. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would tell uh, students who are incoming into these PWI institutions um, would be to join organizations. Uh, there's always a lot of community groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I joined when I first started UConn, I joined UNESCO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was an organization that was really focused on human rights. Um, and so uh, naturally, there was majority black and brown people in there. Funny. <laughs> and so even just having people who were like super nice to me at UConn, I was like really surprised. <laughs> you know? So I was like, okay, so that was like my transition. in. Mm-hmm. um so, because I, I surrounded myself with um, majority black and brown folks, so right. it was kind of like I naturally did that. And even when I was young, my best friend was Pakistani and Lebanese, and so I naturally subconsciously do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so do that, and, and don't try conforming with whiteness because you're just gonna you're gonna harm yourself, and you're gonna become insecure. You're gonna like you know kind of hate yourself when you're surrounding yourself with white folks, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna, yeah, so yeah, I was to say. So tell me a little bit more about that. Do you believe that all white folks are um, harmful? Or, you know, how would that, how does that look mm. for you? Um, 
No, I wouldn't say that all white folks are harmful, but I would say uh, you can empower yourself. Well, everyone, you can empower yourself by having close friends that are um, brown and black. That are because, affirming. Yeah, because uh, I feel like in society we're already doing a lot of um, anti-black sort of environment around us. Mm-hmm. And so when you surround yourself kind of with people who understand your environment, uh, then you, then I guess I, I see more people thriving with that rather than I see um, folks who are surrounding themselves with white folks. But not, not uh, they're not harming, but I'm saying that in this society, everyone is a little anti-black until they unlearn it. Mm-hmm. I see. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I feel like, um, so I went to, I grew up in Hartford, and I all my life I've only known Latino and black people. Like, I can probably name on my hand, like, five, like, white people that I knew growing up. And so when I went to UConn, like, it was obviously uh, an eye-opener being the minority in the case. And and so I would say, like Sneha said, like, there are communities and there are groups where I surrounded myself with people who are like me. You know, I was actively involved in the cultural centers. Um, I worked at the Puerto Rican Latin American Cultural Center. And, um, you know, I met people that, you know, identified in somewhat their experiences like me. And so, um, and I feel like, Going to UConn gave me the opportunity to see that the world isn't just, like, black and brown, you know? And I wouldn't have known that because I raised my whole life in Hartford. Right. Um, and I think it gave me that kind of... Um, it navigated me in the way that I could um, get into spaces where it's not... Where I'm not familial, you know? So, like, I don't think I would ever... I would have ever done that had I not gone to a predominantly white institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just me. And I feel mm-hmm. like, um, you know, and I, I hate when people, or I hate that people do feel so uncomfortable in spaces like that. It's, it, I mean, I myself, I can't say that I've never had, like, walked into a room and, and not felt uncomfortable when I'm the, of the minority, but then I also feel empowered and I also feel strong that I am that only person in that room. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, like, despite um, me being a little different or, you know, me not being of the same race, I can and I do have all the same qualities um, professionally, um, educationally, you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. There's an empowering piece in that. Um, but it is hurtful that pe- you, people feel so strongly that they're, um, that it isn't, you know. Right. And I understand that. Right. So for you, it was a challenge to transition from a, a very familiar setting where it was primarily black and brown people, Latino and African-Americans for the most part, and to a white institution um, where the majority of people were all white. Um, but yet that challenge, you were able to navigate it in a way that has prepared you, it sounds like, mm-hmm. for the world. Right. And when you find yourself in that situation where you are 
literally the minority, mm-hmm. you feel like I can I can manage this, I can navigate this, I I could do this, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, yeah. There's two sides, two different stories, right? So on one hand, it feels secure and affirming to be with people who are like you, who look like you, who um, understand you, um, but understanding that there are spaces where that's not Mm -hmm. what's going to happen, Mm -hmm. and you have to be able to navigate that space. Mm -hmm. Or balance it. Yeah. 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 But I think you were saying, don't lose yourself Mm -hmm. by going into a white space and not having an affirming um, environment for yourself, mm. right? Right. That's yeah. so difficult. Yeah. Is it? it? Yeah. Tell it me is. about that. Yeah. Well, to your point about like, if I, I think your question was, is all white people harmful? Right. I think that all white people have the potential to be harmful, mm. and I think that if there is a white person out there that believes that they are not or they don't have the potential to be harmful, that is alarming, mm. and that's probably the most harmful person out mm. there. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, for me, um, I grew up as an athlete before I even came into, like, social justice stuff. Um, I played soccer all my life. And in the U.S., for girls at least, it's predominantly white sport. And so I was that token black girl on the team growing up. And I did experience a lot with them. And I did go through great lengths to try to fit in with them, like to the point of even like perming my hair because thinking that straight hair was something I needed to have. Um, so yeah, I feel like when you do hang around people or, or white spaces as a person of color um, or just a marginalized identity, that you feel the need to change yourself to fit into some type of normalcy that you feel that you don't have. And I, th- it wasn't until, um, honestly, my master's program and, and getting more into social justice issues that I started to realize how important a black space was and, and a, a whole black space that was just for black people. I had black friends growing up that were like mostly West Indian. They didn't play sports or anything. And that kept me grounded. But um, as I like reached each higher level in soccer, it was the more white people I was around. And um, I started to lose myself, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important as like a person of color going into these predominantly white institutions to know that this place was not created for us. This this place was created by us, but not for us. And so with that being said, like, don't be afraid to claim a space for yourself and the other people that look like you and have the same identity as you. And don't be afraid to say hell no when people are like, that's anti-white or or that's discriminatory, because it's not. Wow, very powerful, creating a space. I hear that a lot about being in white spaces and having to minimize 
who you are, your identity, whether it's perming your hair or straightening your hair or for some people it's lightening their skin or dressing a certain way or for those of us who are immigrants, it might be changing the, the, our accents or the way we speak, right, um, so that we will be approved by the dominant culture and we would fit in and we would assimilate um, and there's a lot of push for that because, you know, it's easier to accept someone who represents, while they may be part of the, the minority group, you know, and I mean that um, uh, in terms of numerical, um, they're not, they're more acceptable if they sound like, look like, as close as possible to the dominant group, right? So there's a lot of messages about about how to change that. And we get it from our own people, too, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely historical, though. Mm-hmm. When you're in, a obviously, a system of oppression, you have to survive first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, oftentimes, when you're getting that energy from people of our own um, identities or backgrounds, and they are, let's say, um, conforming, to the system of oppression, that's because they're just trying to survive. Yeah. So yeah. I, I will always respect their opinion. However, mm-hmm. I just can't live by that same ideology. Right, mm-hmm. right. Now, how do you deal with people who cannot hear your opinion because <laughs> it's not one that conforms with the dominant culture, right? It, the message is get along, you know, go along and get along, right? For lack of a better word. But so, how do you how do you do how do you stay true to your identity in a in an environment that says you shouldn't, that gives you all kinds of messages? Um, and how do you balance um, people either accusing you of being rebellious or being the angry black woman? How do you do that? What's that like? Honestly, I think this is a very interesting question because I feel, and this is my in my experience, so this might not be for everybody, I feel like this brings up a generational conversation more so than probably anything else because throughout our entire lives, throughout our entire childhood, we are taught to go above and beyond what our parents did. Right. However, when you get to that position where you may or you may be more knowledgeable than them or you just may have more interest and just a little bit bolder than they were, you get that resistance. So it's all about, like, you have to control your space as much as you possibly can. And this is very difficult to do, especially when you're talking about family, because you do not always get to control how often you see your family, especially if you still live at home or... You just interact with them often. Of course, you don't want to lose the people you love, but you also have to understand, like, okay, now this is going to be either traumatic or just difficult for me to endure. So I have to find a way to step away and find my space, find my peace, and find my people. Just because they're family or you've always known them doesn't mean they have to be your people for every aspect of your life. So I think it's important to be able to separate yourself. So you also have to navigate the space in your familiar 
group Definitely. in your familiar community. Definitely. Yeah. You, so it's a lot of navigation going on, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's like code switching. <laughs> yeah. Constantly code switching. Yeah. You code switch on campus in the classroom. <laughs> yeah. and you have to do it at home too in your yeah. community. Full time. <laughs> wow. No, I would say that um, I think it goes back to being unapologetic again and just understanding. Like I tell myself all the time that, you know, I'm living my ancestors' wildest dreams. And just for that, like I need to say whatever I need to say that is on my mind and do whatever I need to do because they obviously did not have the chance to do so. And so for that, that is why I keep my mouth open and I say what I need to say. Right. So that's very interesting. And I'm going to ask the question of all of you. What in your past, whether it's ancestral or um, from a different country or um, a, a parent or grandparent, who in your past would you say have been most influential to you and has helped you both personally and career-wise academically? Um in, in terms of your identity and, you know, your solidness around who you are? Mm. Mm. I want to say definitely my, my mom. Um, she would always tell me growing up that I'm not American. <laughs> so she would be like, you're Indian, you're Indian. <laughs> and um, I am glad she told me that because I love being Indian um, I embrace that. I'm Indian American, right? Yeah. Hyphen. Uh, and I was always known as like that weird Indian girl growing up, right? Um, but I still love that about myself mm-hmm. because people were definitely bullying me for sure. There were like these white kids who would ask me what world I'm from, right? Mm. Like every day. Um, and like, but I still truly still loved being Indian, right? Because that's like something I'm bringing in, right? And it's a collectivist society, right? Mm-hmm. We're living in an individualistic society right now in America, especially New England. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like one thing that really keeps me going is my collectivist background because I like community. I like I like the we, not the me. Right. right. Um, and that keeps me going. So yeah. she was really influential in my life and still is. Great, great. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mom. She did a yeah. fabulous job. <laughs> Shout out to Mom. <laughs> mm-hmm. Great. I would say um, maybe a mix between my mom and my cousin. Um, so my mom didn't have much of an education. Um, she did have, she started um, what would be post-secondary education in Peru, but um, that those degrees don't count over here. So um, she knows the importance of education and always like pushed me to um you know obviously pursue my studies and pursue what I what I want to do but doesn't have that experience herself um especially being from a different country being from Peru um never was really able to help me navigate um applying to college um my resumes or any of that um however one of my older cousins who I would say it's I still look up to she um she did um, come from Peru at the age of 17, um, enrolled in community college, 
um, was able to transfer to um, University of St. Joseph's and it got her master's degree from there. And I always look up to the path that she did. Um, took her so long, you know, to not only go to community college, but then have to, well, take ESL classes in community right. college. Um, but she finished with her master's degree. And I still um, would say that that's one of my biggest motivating factors um, is to see, like, someone actually being able to do it. Of course, my mom pushed me, and she's like, you can do everything you want to do. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, she just didn't have, didn't have the opportunity to do it. Right, yeah. right, great. So having those two ladies in your life have been instrumental in getting you through some of the difficulties. Yeah. Great, thanks. Okay, so um, I feel like this conversation is a lot more complex for me. Okay. So I'm interracial, and uh, my mom is white, and my dad is U.S. American black. And to be honest, growing up, there was n- there just wasn't enough conversation about race. The only conversation that I can recall off the top of my head about race was how it could benefit me or how it could make me successful navigating throughout this world. And, I mean, as an interracial (laughs) black male, I'm always a token in every situation that I'm in, especially around white people. So, like, they taught me how to navigate. They didn't really teach me how to navigate that, but they commented on that. However, just learning about my self-identity as a person of color, as a black person, as a person from the African diaspora, that really was all me, all self-reflection, And then when I went to the MLK program uh, as an MLK scholar, I studied Martin Luther King, his um, teachings, his practices, his lectures, his speeches, his sermons. And I also went to um, on a civil rights tour in Alabama and Georgia. And my daddy from my daddy family from Alabama. So Alabama is like home for me. Right. That's as far as my lineage goes for the African diaspora, unfortunately. So when I went there, it was like a whole, like I went to the Mecca, basically. It really (laughs) changed my whole life, for real. And I just, I don't know, I embraced my blackness after that moment. Right. And I I have not looked back since. So, and I'm not, I'm not trying to talk down, mom and dad, if you ever listen to this. (laughs) Like, I can never put into words what y'all taught me, however... I feel when it comes to my self-identity as a black person, it was me. Okay. Okay. Thank you. It was you with the environment that they provided for you and the opportunities they provided for you, but also the MLK program, right? Right. Definitely. community in Alabama. Absolutely. Good. Absolutely. Thank you. So for me, I feel like my person would be my grandma on my dad's side. Um, I feel like she's a lot like me or I'm a lot like her in the sense of like she knew at a young age that she needed to do more with her life and she didn't know how she was going to get there, but she was going to do it somehow. And after she had my dad in Jamaica, she left to go to England to find work. And both my grandmas actually did that. And what got them over here was domestic work. And... um, like, for her to get through that, because, like, domestic work is not easy. Like, she was raising other people's kids that, you know, she still has their pictures in her house right now. And I just look at her as being so strong and and so unapologetic about what she needed for herself. And 
you know, no man was going to take that away from her. Not even the confines of a country was going to take that away from her, which I respect so much. Um, and I just grew up with her telling me all the time that, you know, just get that paper, just get that paper and nobody can tell you nothing. <laughs> so that was my, my goal, just getting that degree. And I know that like when she sees me graduate my master's, it's going to be like the ultimate thing for her. Like, like it's going to be almost like everything she's ever been through was all worth it. And, you know, like that's, that's literally what keeps me growing. Just, just knowing that she went from country to country to, to come here and find a property, you know, get her money in order and, and raise her kids by herself, four of them. And, you know, because she did that, I'm able to do all the things I can do today. Right. She sounds really, you know, fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was like a pioneer. She she was like a pioneer, but at the same time, she's just this little old Jamaican woman <laughs> that, you know, just stays in her house and, you know, cooks her food and cleans and does what she needs to do. And she hums all day and <laughs> she's so cute. But at the same time, she has so much might and so much yes. strength inside yes. of her. And you can yes. see that. Yes, Absolutely. So I just want to ask the question, because you raised something for me, um, the issue of talking about race in the in your home, you know, was that ever an issue? Did it ever come up? Um, you said it didn't, but having parents who are both black and white, um, did it come up in an unintentional way in any way? I mean, what was it like to understand who you are as being black, Indian, you know, interracial, Latina. What is it about your child? Did anything happen in your childhood that was um, motivated by a parent or some incident that helped you understand this, painful or not? So I can elaborate. I'm sorry, Sam. (laughs) So if I were to backtrack it, the best way that I can explain it is... So I'm a teacher, so I'm going to use teacher language. So in a school, we have what's called the curriculum, which is like the regular content, and then the hidden curriculum. So the formal and informal. Exactly. Gotcha. So I feel like I got definitely a spicy splash of the hidden curriculum, especially from my dad. My dad's black. He's unapologetically black. (laughs) And like, I don't know. I really, if you were to ask my mom right now, which parent I'm more like, she would say him, just because, like, I just embraced who he was so much, so did my twin brother, and, like, just through that, we definitely, uh, we embrace our blackness just through him being black and being who he was. However, like, I remember he used to have conversations with us about, like, if we were to encounter police or blah, 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 but... That's really where the conversation ended right then and there. Um, Mm -hmm. If you even attempted to have a conversation about racism, 
especially amongst white people who are in our family or in people in relative proximity to us, that conversation got shut down. It didn't need to be had. It was concluded for me. So, like, (laughs) that was that on that. And I don't know. It's just, it's a very complex situation when you're in an interracial um, family or couple or relationship, however you want to call it, because many times in interracial relationships, and this is my problem with them as a whole, the black person is taken away from the black space and have to assimilate to whiteness. So there wasn't really going to be a time where we was going to live like my dad had to work up in the world and he wasn't going to go back. So working up in the world means you going to live in a white white town, white neighborhood where affluent people live. So you just he had to conform to that. I I can never explain the things that he may have just had to silence or deal with however he dealt with it. I can only explain how I did or how he taught me to do it and it just it wasn't as expressive as I reflect on it now as I would have liked it to be. Okay. And so I'd just like to plant a seed with you in terms of when you have your own children, if you do have your own children, what would that look like? As we go around the room, think about that. For Definitely. A bit. Yeah. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> 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 oh, okay. So, um, so when I was young, I remember my... Um, dad saying, both my parents would always talk about race. My dad still talks about race like every single day. And, um, but there's also a difference in shade, like skin color. My mom is light skin and my dad is darker skin. And that makes a difference in how they talk about it. And that's when I really started realizing like skin color makes a huge difference in your conversations. So my dad is always, so when I was young, they would say, um, oh, you can't trust white people. And then I would ask, like, little self, like, ten, my 10-year-old self, like, oh, like, why not? And um, then they wouldn't elaborate. They would, they would just be like, you'll see, you know? <laughs> I saw. And my dad's been called a black guy before and stuff. Like, I see he's more darker-skinned, right? And so he's really faced it in his work environments and the repercussions of that and everything as well. Um and so, yeah, that's still, that's a conversation that happens, it happened in my house, in my home. Uh, and I have a brother, he's 11, and he's actually bringing it back from school now, too. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Like, he's noticing it, but it's also because now I'm talking about it, and now mm-hmm. my parents are talking about it, and we're all talking about it, right? And so, um, he's like a little basketball player, and he's always practicing, you know, shooting the hoops and everything like that. He loves basketball. But he feels like his gym teacher um, never calls on him. He's, he said that they're, he's only calling on the, the white kids because they're kind of assuming that the white kids are better than basketball than the Indian kids. So just giving a background on demographics, it's like majority brown now, the youth. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like majority um, brown, like they see, like Indian, Bangladeshi, Pakistani. Definitely. Yeah. Yes, teacher. <laughs> uh, and so... Um, he, that gets him frustrated, right? Because he wants to like show people that he's got a hoop. So they chose um, the gym teacher chose him uh, to sh- set an example two days ago because the gym teacher wanted to show how um, it's hard to to shoot 
like multiple hoops in a row. So they chose him because they're assuming that he's going to miss. And so he got chosen. He he shot 12 hoops in a row. And he's like super happy about it. And he comes back home and he tells us this and he's like happy about it. But it's just so frustrating because it's like, dang, why is he going through stuff like that? And then he's also telling me that the darker skinned Indians are the ones who are getting bullied the most. Uh So once again, it's like that colorism, that anti-blackness that's still going on and in everywhere in America. Um, Everywhere in the world. Yes. Everywhere in the world for sure. Um, You know, something you said that's really interesting is that he was selected as an example to fail. Mm -hmm. Mm. And while he knew that and he took the challenge and showed them that he can achieve it Mm -hmm. and he's not going to fail... How is that impacting his psyche? Mm-hmm. It sounds 11. like he flipped it. Like it's almost he like did it was flip his it. time to shine. Yes, okay. which is great. Yeah. But what if he wasn't as enthusiastic, you know, about it and he didn't practice and he wasn't ready to, you know, ready to go? Because, I mean, to say and to, to either symbolically or explicitly... Mm. Use an 11 year old to demonstrate what failure looks like, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Any 11 year old. Any 11 year old. Right, yeah. yeah. It, it, it just, you know, it's. And, it's and just, what message are you giving the white students? Mm-hmm. Right. Definitely. How does wow. that contribute to what's going on now on college campuses? Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. And these teachers are the same teachers I had growing up. So it's like these are the same exact teachers, you know, which is also another problem. We need more black and brown teachers. Um, We need black and brown teachers who are awakened, you know, because Mm -hmm. if they're putting blinders on and keeping their head Mm -hmm. down Mm -hmm. to get along, they may not explicitly do it. Mm -hmm. But if they saw it or heard it, they're going to say, just keep your head down and keep it moving. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I actually have comments on that when it comes to failure on college campus. So when I transferred to UConn, um, like I said, when I went to Ithaca, I was a business major. So I went into UConn assuming that I would be a business major. And I actually didn't get into the business school. So I had a little reflection period and I decided that I wanted to be a math teacher. So I went to the, um, the math advising office to see how I could switch majors. And this dude had never met me before. He'd never seen me in his life. And he's looking at my transcripts. And I'm, now that I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, I had a 3.5. Like, I had very good grades. Um, he's looking at my transcript. He looked at me. He goes, yeah, don't bother. You're not going to get in. You're not going to make it. You'll probably take four years to finish. So find another major. And I said, oh, really? Okay. So, I mean, I just, one thing that I believe in is self-advocacy. So I went and found somebody else who was going to help me get to where I wanted to be. But, like, that could have stopped me right there. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I would have had to do something that I didn't want to do or just completely different. Right. Which is, like. Or give up. That's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a problem for students coming in who d- don't have the support you do. Right. And are not used to having to advocate 
in that way. Absolutely. Right? Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Any um, conversations at home about race when you were growing up? I think that's such a complex question. <laughs> um, just because, um, you know, I identify as uh, Latina, Peruvian, American. Um, but growing up, like, at home, you know, my parents sh- um, came from Peru in the 80s. Um, and at the time, I don't think they really understood race relations in the United States, let alone race relations in Peru. So, you know, because in Peru, like, race isn't the same as the race here. You know, like, um, there is anti-blackness in all of Latin America, and in Peru especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Peru, you know, people don't identify as black. They don't. Even mm-hmm. though there are black Peruvians, there are um, Afro-Peruvians, there's um, also like Asian um, Peruvians as well. Um, but they don't identify in, the, in terms of race in that way. And so then coming to the United States, I, I don't think they fully grasp that concept as well. Um, so I, I feel like the conversation of race didn't really start until I got older and I started to kind of question um, like what my mom would identify as or what my parents identify as um, and then think about what I'm identifying as because then I don't really understand either, you know? Um, And then starting to learn about, again, like the race relations in the United States versus in Latin America. Um, You know, growing up, my mom was always called um, Negra, which is black. And, you know, she ne- she it never really occurred. In Peru. In yeah, Peru. yeah. Her nickname is Negra, okay. like, and it's it's black. And mm-hmm. so my my mom never really explained that. And um, in terms that that it is because she's a little darker skinned, um, you know. And it, and I don't think like they fully again under grasp the concept of race. Um, but then when I start to educate myself on it, um and ask um, questions about how race was talked about at home. Um, it's very, you know, it goes back to the, those stereotypes, you know, um, and it goes back to those microaggressions, and um, and it, it hurts because it's like I didn't know that that's kind of where race in their mind was. It, and... Um, you know, I think something my mom would tell me is that my grandfather um, would say, you know, you can't mix the races. can't You can't mess up your race. Like, mm-hmm. and I didn't know that that was something my grandfather said, but mm-hmm. but that that but it's true because mm-hmm. there is, you know, that that anti-blackness in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that now it's obviously a lot better. I, I try to educate my family all the time, like about you know what things are not okay to say, what things are, um, and you know, and try to educate also that you know there might be some ancestry in our lineage. You just don't identify with it because you weren't raised to identify with it. Mm-hmm. And 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 I know, um, you know, I don't. I would never like identify myself as a uh, a black woman because I'm not um but I know that in our lineage there has to be you know um Peru is usually indigenous um a lot of people um have straight black hair 
I have nothing like that, <laughs> you know, and I, I have certain features that I know that, you know, there has to be ties to some mm-hmm. African ancestry. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like I wouldn't ever, ever identify myself as that because that isn't what I, um, you know, it's not in my reflection of what I am. I, I am a Latina, I am Peruvian, mm-hmm. um, American, you know, raised in the United States. So, okay. yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So it's a, co- it's complex, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people are at different places. But what's worldwide and what we know is that the darker you are, the less valued you are. I think we can say that. Right. Worldwide. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Worldwide, yeah. 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 And we do know that the first human beings started in Africa, came mm-hmm. from Africa. So <laughs> <laughs> it's always amazing, you know. Um, wow. So talking about race in our families is uncomfortable, to say the least. Um, For many people, they're just beginning to have that conversation. For many people, if they are not black, but they have some ancestral lineage that um, is connected to being black, they may not talk about it. It may be a form of shame or stigma, right? So it's it's really interesting um, how we get to where we are today. You know, and so I, to close, I just kind of want to ask you two things. One, what message do you want to share with the world um, on this topic? (laughs) And um, the other one is if you were speaking to a faculty or an administrator in a higher education institution, what would you like them to know about what it's like? to be a person of color or a black person walking in white space, whether it's a classroom or on campus or going to a math advisory office, um, you know, what's that like? Um, So I actually think about that second question a lot when it comes to my grad program. I would love to ask my professors, just sit there and ask them, what would the conversation about race be like if I or someone like me was not in this room right now? Mm-hmm. Because I know from my experience, a lot of times after we had a multicultural class or whatever it may be, like the co- the topic of conversation is race and just th- uh, different forms of oppression. However, when I'm sitting there reflecting after we just had this conversation, I had to do most of the talking or like it never passed the surface. Mm -hmm. So like no one learned anything if I wasn't here. Mm -hmm. So like how would the conversation go if I was not here Mm -hmm. would be my question. My um, comment for everybody, vote. Okay, (laughs) I really need y'all to vote. (laughs) Like you don't understand how many people fought for you to vote. Mm -hmm. Um, It is the least that you can do. And even more so than that, out of respect for our ancestors, you should have respect for yourselves and the future generations. Mm -hmm. Because if you do not vote, the status quo is not going to change. And you will be complaining about the same thing you did today. So vote. Did you see how the Boston activist won by one vote yesterday? For real? Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Vote. (laughs) And she was like loved by the community, and they did a recount. And she was like, wow. Wow. That's crazy. Wow. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Anyone else? I feel like if I were to tell somebody that is trying to be in my shoes or is a person of color a part of marginalized identity, I would just say do whatever you can to be your true and full self and do whatever you can to reach your full potential, no matter what that means. Because I do, I do believe that we're all on this journey to find our true potential. And for people that exist within marginalized populations, it's much harder for us. Like I think about, like I, I, I battle with anxiety a lot and I feel like, well, I used to take medication for it and I don't now. And one of the reasons why I started to not take medication for it is because I started to feel like this anxiety that I'm having, it's not because like I'm producing it, it's because of the world around me that's producing it. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to put myself on these pharmaceuticals because the world around me is messed up. I'm not messed up, you know? And so like just like realizing that and understanding that I was able to have some more introspection and be more mindful and understand that like I could process myself through this journey if I understood that there's an internal me and then there's an external around me. And so for myself, I just try to present as myself the best I can in whatever room and whatever space. And even as when we're talking about white spaces and how hard it is to still be yourself, like that is how I win the day by being myself and saying what I needed to say because nobody else in this world made me small or put me in the box that they wanted me to fit in. I created my own box. So I think that's what what people need to do and especially young people to start creating your own box. Wow, very powerful. Thank you for that. Uh, I guess from... I guess this is the econ in me or the public policy, but I'm like, <laughs> make sure to invest in brown and black businesses, you know, make mm. sure to put your money where you want to see it grow and divest in the big businesses, the corporate support, the the unions, um, because they, they, they make a difference. Um, especially here in Hartford, the Working Families Party does a lot for um Hartford um yes um and yeah so I would say support your um your black and brown friends who are also starting up businesses um market them support them advertise them um because a lot of people are starting up businesses like nowadays so um definitely support with that thank you for that message Mm -hmm. yep great um I would say I think Maybe some advice, just as things have helped me. Um, Reflection, really important. Um, I self-reflect all the time um, in goal setting and thinking of what, like, um, you were saying, like, what's your purpose in life and what kind of things do you want to leave in this world? Um, And what steps are you going to take to get to that? Um, You know, and I think every step is a is a step. I think like um, even just getting up in the morning, it's, that's one step as to what your um, legacy you're going to leave behind. Um, and so that, but in addition to um, also look for other resources and collaborate 
Um, don't feel like you have to do everything on your own. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> like, don't feel like you can take everything on your back because you cannot and you don't have to. There's so many other people there that have the same goals, focus, and can help and support you. And it's healthy to do that. Um, and also just to relax sometimes, you know, you don't always have to um, take on every hurdle you see. Sometimes it's okay to to just, you know, look at the hurdle, mm-hmm. <laughs> question it, <laughs> and then take a step. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Wow. This has been really powerful. I want to thank you all for coming and sharing and um, helping people to understand how it is to walk in your shoes, what your experience has been like, and how you cope with it. And you all are doing a fabulous job, by the way. <laughs> thank you for having us. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for so much. <laughs> in today's episode about hate crimes on college campuses, a few of the statements that were made by the guest speakers resonated with me. They are... It isn't the role of the oppressed to teach the oppressor. Another one is, I was talking and no one was listening. The third, racism would have you feel what you experienced didn't happen. The fourth, don't conform with whiteness because it will harm you. The fifth is, everyone is anti-black until they unlearn it. And the last one is, I live my ancestors' wildest dreams. In today's episode, several themes emerged. Identity and identity politics, having role models, creating safe spaces on and off campus, learning to navigate white spaces, being self-reflective, addressing microaggressions, and understanding the formal and informal curriculum. We hope when you listen to our podcast, you will come out of it being more informed. We hope that this would build community within higher education. We also hope that faculty can integrate this information in their curriculum and to start having conversations using the information here to educate themselves and their students. We hope that parents can use the information for educating themselves about the college campus community. And we also hope that administrators can use this knowledge to be impactful in their policies and procedures around diversity, inclusion, and equity. In our next episode, we will be speaking to faculty to get their reactions and insights about the conversation you just heard with college students. Please join us again as we continue this important conversation. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on the Inside Out, Outside In podcast. You have been listening to the Inside Out, Outside In podcast. Our executive producer is Gabe Herman. Our production assistant is Sneha Jayaraj. Original music for this podcast was composed by June Ino. The Inside Out, Outside In podcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Hartford Consortium for Higher Education. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of any college, university, or the Hartford Consortium of Higher Education. Thank you for listening.